0: Let's get back into Nehemiah. If you're just tuning in, uh, there is a whole lot of context that's necessary to understand, um, you know, what's fully going on in this book. So I would just encourage you to go back uh, and listen to the first couple of sermons to be caught up, but I'm going to give you a really brief recap uh, to just orient you just enough to get rolling. The book of Nehemiah is the final narrative book in the Old Testament, so it's essentially, it's the end of the story before there are 400 years of silence that lead up to the coming of Christ, uh, but, but through a series of unfortunate, and sin-induced events that came about due to the spiritual decline of the nation of Israel. Uh, They were captured, and they were then taken into exile by several foreign empires, okay? And so they're exiled for uh, 70 years, and the Persian king determines to let Israel return home. Uh, And from a worldly standpoint, you know, uh, it was it was for diplomatic reasons probably that he does this, but from a biblical perspective, it has to do mainly with God's sovereign purposes in the world. The, the Jewish prophets have been uh, prophesying, foretelling that the exile would be 70 years long from the start, and so that time passes, and sure enough, God is letting his people uh, go free. But As they begin to go home and rebuild, they encounter some hostile resistance, which leaves Jerusalem uh, in a dire strait with uh, little ability to defend itself. And so this is where Nehemiah comes to the scene. Nehemiah is a Jew who has a powerful uh, position in the Persian government as the cupbearer to the king, and uh, he gets word about Israel's trouble. And so uh, as we find out, being a devout man of God who desires to see God's kingdom uh, flourish and his people be restored, Nehemiah begins to mourn and cry out to God through a season of fasting and prayer. And so last week, we, we talked about why Christians should combine. The practices of fasting and prayer as a spiritual discipline, essentially, uh, or or especially in the midst of, uh, or as they're coming out of what's been kind of a a prolonged season of of hardship in in life. And it's because it's, it's in these times that we tend to be particularly desperate. For spiritual breakthrough, right, or or for God to move in a distinct way on our behalf, and so uh, fasting kind of tends to be uh, this combination of showing remorse for how uh, we haven't been seeking the Lord as we ought, <clears throat> as well as this kind of renewed sense of our great need for His gracious work in our lives, and so that was really the motivation behind Nehemiah's prayer that we read last week. And so this morning, uh, we're going to see what happens following that prayer. So let's go ahead and pick it up uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, uh, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God upon me. Let's pray, and let's uh, figure out what we can see here. Father, you are so good to us, and so we thank you for this day, all the blessings of life that you have graciously poured out to us, many of which we take for granted and don't even think to be thankful for. That said, we thank you for the service that we're able to have it each week together. Uh, A year ago at this time, Lord, we were still bouncing back and forth between whether we should meet together or not due to a global pandemic. And so I pray that we would not so quickly forget that being together is a great joy that we should not neglect and that we shouldn't forget can be snatched away quickly by things that we don't even see coming. But now, Lord, as we get back into the story of Nehemiah, I pray that we would continue to receive insight from your Spirit as to how we should apply such an amazing story of breakthrough in the life of an otherwise unknown man who determined to pray, fast, repent, and determine how his life might be better spent for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to, to how we need to repent What kind of planning for change we might need to do in each of our lives that by your grace alone we might be like Nehemiah and be people who are willing to take risky steps of faith in order to realign our lives with your will. I pray ultimately this time in your word would be glorifying to you, God, and that the gospel would be lifted up and seen as our greatest need. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing that we see in this passage okay, is that some substantial time has passed between the time when Nehemiah first began praying and fasting and when he interacts with the king regarding what he's been praying about. Okay, Uh, The month of uh, Nisan is in the springtime, so probably March or April. And if you remember, the book starts out in the month of Chislev, which we said uh, was probably November, December-ish time frame. And so uh, about four months had gone by. And some commentators speculate that it was likely that the setting that we're reading about here uh, was, was maybe a festival of some sort, as Persian kings were known to have elaborate parties all throughout the year. And so maybe that's what's going on, and Nehemiah comes as the cupbearer to serve the king some wine, uh, as Nehemiah would have been the only one to administer food or drink to the king as his well-trusted cupbearer. Uh, and when he does, the, the king takes notice that something is off with Nehemiah. Judging by the frequent close proximity and high-level security clearance that Nehemiah would have had uh, with Artaxerxes, the king is likely not upset with with Nehemiah so much uh, as he is concerned for him. Not to mention, if this is unfolding in the midst of a a big party, uh, it would be strange for Nehemiah to look sad, right? Uh, Now, uh, essentially, it's it's as if the king says, hey, Nehemiah, what's up, man? What's up? You okay? You're not sick, I know, because you're serving my food. So you're not sick, right? Uh, It seems like you're depressed. Now, this is interesting because Nehemiah, in his narration of these events, explains that while he had been mourning privately for God's people in Jerusalem, he had not allowed his inner countenance to show through externally on his face up until this point. Right, So uh, it would seem that, that Nehemiah, understandably due to his high position, is a, is a mature man with a good degree of emotional intelligence, okay? That is, uh, he's very self-aware, he's aware of his surroundings, and he's able to regulate his demeanor in the midst of other people, regardless of how he may actually be feeling. And I, I would file this characteristic under the biblical category of self-control. This is not mainly what this passage is about, but as an aside, you know, we should strive to emulate Nehemiah in this way, Okay, in a world that is out of control with angry, emotional outbursts and ghosting and canceling and cutting people off by the new nomenclature that's accepted of you know being triggered or you know by microaggressions or or, or politically incorrect language, you know, like Christians are called to be people who are meek and self-controlled. You know, the wisdom literature has a lot to say about this. Proverbs 12, 16 says the vexation of a fool, that is the frustration or the irritation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent or the wise ignores an insult. Proverbs twenty one eleven says a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 10, 8 says the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs sixteen thirty two says whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules... His spirit than he who takes a city. So, even if someone unintentionally uh, offends us or even intentionally wounds us, which let me just be straight with you, okay? It's gonna happen, fam. Isn't it? It's gonna happen. People are gonna hurt you, they're going to offend you unintentionally or maybe on purpose. And our faith should enable us to apply grace and kindness to those who may hurt us real time. Real time. Because we have a Savior and a Lord who in the midst of mockery and slander and hatred and crucifixion, His response is prayer and the extension of forgiveness even prior to repentance from the offending party, right? It's not, that we, it's not that we repress our emotions or that we don't ever communicate that we are upset. It's just that as Christians, we, we strive to be wise and we strive to be discerning about how and when we do it, if we do it, right? Sometimes Proverbs says it's good to overlook an offense, and the self-control we have as the fruit of the Spirit is what allows us to do this and to regulate how we respond to our emotions more generally, okay? Which is what we see from Nehemiah in this passage. He's, he's not being manipulative or pretending to be upset just to try to you know, sway the king here. He's being wise. He knows his place, and so he didn't just come right out initially with how he had been feeling to the king, as that would have been inappropriate, Okay, and he, he also knew that he needed time to hear from the Lord before he went and took the risk of addressing the king, right? And so uh, he'd probably been waiting for the Lord's timing. I mean, he's waited four months, uh, though surely he knew he had a good enough rapport with the king that if he allowed his sadness of heart to show the, the king would likely pick up on it and allow him to speak when spoken to. Okay, so the king does address him. And Nehemiah says that in that moment, he is very much afraid, right? <laughs> He's freaking out, right? Probably because while Artaxerxes was only a man, he, he did have absolute power over you know, quite a bit from the earthly perspective, and thus to upset him would not have been good for Nehemiah, right? If the king were to think that Nehemiah were being you know, disloyal or, or worse, treasonous, it would not have just been the loss of his job. It would have likely been the loss of his life. Okay, So Nehemiah is taking a huge risk in this moment by opening up to the king. Hence, he says that he goes instinctively to the Lord in prayer. Right Now, obviously, he did not have time to kneel down and pray this big, long prayer right there. This had to have been a silent prayer in his heart for the Lord's immediate help right then, which again, man, we should strive to be like Nehemiah, shouldn't we? I'm seeing a lot about Nehemiah I would like to emulate in my own life and that I sometimes strive to. As believers, we should uh, for sure be having more extended times of prayer during our times of devotion in the Word and, and for our daily needs, but we should also be praying in this way, this, these little kind of shotgun prayers that we're praying to God throughout the day in different situations. As, I, as I'm driving to work, I'm often thinking about my day and, and asking the Lord for His grace and the different tasks and, and things, meetings that I have before As I'm going into a meeting or about to have an important conversation, I'm, I'm usually praying, asking for the Lord's wisdom and for His insight and to give me the words that I need to say there. As I'm walking into the house after a long day, I'm, I'm often praying as I walk through the door, right, for, for God's help, for me to lovingly uh, engage my wife and, and my kids, right? This is how it should be. In any intimate relationship, really. And so it makes sense that we should engage with the Lord in this way, too. In my, in my marriage with Amy, I usually have our longer conversations in the evening times when the day uh, is done. But we're constantly texting each other all throughout the day, right? We're in communication all, all the time because we love each other. We are best friends. And that's what you do, right? That's what you do. And so uh, it's also what we should do in our relationship with the Lord, Because he's our God, he's our closest friend, and we can. Like, we can. We're able. Isn't that amazing that we can talk to God literally any time throughout the day or night? We can talk to God. And so why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? So Nehemiah fires off a prayer for help as he's about to jump into this conversation with the king. And it goes well. And what we see in this conversation is that evidently Nehemiah, as he's been praying and fasting over the past four months or so, he's, been, he's also been strategizing, okay? He's been processing and he's been working through this question of, you know, if God were to allow him to help with the problems in Jerusalem, what might that look like? What might that look like? And so with that, let's, let's go back to this idea of spiritual breakthrough, because This passage is kind of the beginning of Nehemiah's breakthrough here, okay? And from it, I think we can kind of deduce two big ideas that we could say generally characterize genuine spiritual breakthrough. The first one is that spiritual breakthrough is usually preceded by an arresting sense of godly grief, okay? Spiritual breakthrough is usually preceded by an arresting sense of godly grief. We've discussed this pretty in depth so far, but now that most of us are one week into a three week fast, I think it's worth bringing this up uh, again here. You know, as a a dad of four young kids, I hear a lot, like, I mean, a lot of crying. (laughs) Like, a lot of crying. Too much crying. So much crying. Sometimes I want to start crying if it'll make them stop crying, right? Lord, help me. I've even resorted to telling our kids a story of the boy who cried wolf as an attempt to mitigate the crying. Because little kids just cry. Someone takes their toy, turns off their TV show, eats a bite of their snack. You get the picture. The default is they cry. They cry. You have to train them out of that. That's the beginning of forming emotional intelligence, right? They have to learn to use Their words and not their tears to communicate their problems. But this is pretty interesting. And you know that crying has actually been proven to have scientific benefits. Not like kids who cry because they're whining and complaining. Okay, I'm not redeeming that. It's sinful. But anyway, but like actual, you know, legitimate, emotional crying. Crying actually releases stress hormones and toxins from your body. This is science, okay? Science. It activates brain chemicals called oxytocin and uh, endogenous opioids, which are often referred to as endorphins. Okay, And so in a sense, crying dulls pain. Also, some research out of Yale University shows that crying actually helps restore emotional equilibrium when we've had an experience of intense emotion. So it it helps us to naturally kind of come down, right? I'm not saying... (laughs) This is not an application here that you should start trying to make yourself cry uh, or that you should be justifying tears at the drop of a hat. Okay, that, that's actually an indicator of an imbalance and it's not healthy. But uh, occasionally crying, occasionally crying in certain, usually difficult situations is actually a good thing. As it turns out, it's not just something that weak people do. Okay, some of you men are like, oh, I never cry. It's like, well... Let it out, brother. Anyway, but it's a it's a bodily mechanism that God designed everyone to be able to do when necessary. I, I love learning stuff like that because it just, it just showcases the brilliance of God's design, doesn't it? I love, it's just amazing. So anyway, I tell you that because just like crying can be a good thing, so can grief. So can grief. I'm not talking about you know, the the unavoidable grieving process when you lose a a loved one or something. I mean, obviously that's necessary, but I'm talking about uh, a more personal experience of sorrow regarding your own life, all right? I don't know about you, but I have been experiencing experiencing some grief as I've been fasting. I've been using our guided prayer journal each day, which is really good, by the way. I hope you're using it. We got more in the back if you'd like to use one. Um, I just confess to my community group that it's been drawing a lot out of me and revealing ways that, man, I need to repent for how I've been off track. And in a sense, this, this time of fasting so far, it's, it's felt like a spiritual detox where kind of you know, the, the dark corners of my heart are being dredged up and cleaned out by the Spirit because of the time that it affords to kind of systematically take personal inventory. Exposing where I've been anxious and not taking it to the Lord. Exposing where I've been frustrated and, and impatient and not putting that to death. Exposing where I've been faithless and not trusting God, but instead numbing myself perhaps with food or, or technology. I, I'm just going to be really honest with you. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts to see all that. It hurts to see all that coming out of my own heart. It's, it's sad to me to be confronted with my own sin, and it has caused me to grieve and to lament over my breakdown of faith and even idolatry at times. But do you know what happened when I shared that with my community group? Several others voiced a similar experience. and I think that's exactly what we see from Nehemiah as well. We saw it in his prayer last week that he was grieved over his own sin, over his family's sin, and over the the sin of the Jewish nation. And so church, listen, there is a kind of grief that is good and even godly and it's the kind of grief we feel when we are confronted with our own sin and our brokenness. Our response to the exposure of our sin should not be one of indifference. It should be one of sadness for how we failed to trust Jesus. And to put it bluntly, for how we've medicated ourselves with food or technology or alcohol or sex or or whatever. You, You fill in the blank with whatever you make an idol out of. It should crush us. In a good way. It should crush us that we would go to those things in order to numb ourselves from the pains and the difficulties of life rather than taking those things to Christ, right? Our great empathetic high priest who has allowed us the privilege of approaching his throne with any need that we have in order to receive grace and to receive mercy in our time of need. Nehemiah, he was fearful to approach the king of Persia because in that time, it was a scary thing to approach a king, right? It was a scary thing to approach a king. As Americans, we don't really get the whole king thing, but historically speaking, you don't just stroll up into the presence of a king, A monarch who believes that he has divine right. Someone will kill you before you get there. And if you do get there, he may have you thrown in prison for daring to waste his time or for presuming to be important enough for his attention. And yet, as Christians, we have unlimited access to the king of the universe who has encouraged us to come to him to come to him and to unceasingly bother him in order to draw upon his limitless riches of grace. Tim Keller says the only person who would dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And yet we have that kind of access. We have that kind of access, not just to a king, but to the king. And the fact that our sin reveals neglect of that incredible relationship that we've been given, it should grieve our hearts. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because grief is the appropriate response to the revelation of our spiritual poverty in our willful rejection of the kindness of the Lord of glory, who not only gave himself for us, gave his life for us, but who has made himself 100% available to us. Why would we reject that? And yet we do in our sin, don't we? And so when it comes to spiritual breakthrough. It's usually preceded by an arresting sense of godly grief. Not like a fleeting, like, oh, I feel so bad about that. Right? I'm talking about the kind of grief that you can't shake. Okay? That you're not just going to kind of brush off and sweep under the rug and move on without addressing it. The Apostle Paul speaks this kind of godly grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 after he'd called out some sin in the life of the Corinthian church, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what fear what longing what zeal he's saying that he is glad that the Corinthians were grieved not because grief in and of itself is good but because when grief is godly as opposed to worldly in the sense that it's motivated by our sorrow over sin it produces repentance it produces repentance and then he goes on, right, to elaborate on their repentance to say that it worked itself out through action. It stirred them up and it revived their eagerness to correct where they had done wrong and to long zealously for Christ again where they had grown spiritually lethargic. And this again is what we see with Nehemiah while His breakthrough is preceded by an arresting sense of godly grief. It is followed by an intentional time of thoughtful planning for the sake of decisive action. He doesn't just cry and then pray and then say, okay, God, if you want to do something to resolve it, then you do it, right? No. He assumes that God would have him to get up Wash his face and determine to be a part of the solution. And so, as I already said, the, the four months that go by are not just Nehemiah grieving the whole time. He grieves, he repents, and then when he then he, he gets up and he he starts strategizing about what he can do to push for a resolution. He he gives himself to a thoughtful time of planning for the sake of decisive action, and we know this because when the king asks him what he wants to do or what he's requesting, he does not falter, does he? He prays, but he doesn't falter. He says he wants to go back to rebuild his city, and when asked what kind of time and resources that would require, he's able to lay out all of the details, isn't he? He lays it all out. Years ago, a a missionary who Mosaic supported came to us and and spoke to us about a ministry he had in Africa called Gardening God's Way. And the region he was in, it was very rural, and thus farming was a common trade that men in the area wanted to learn. And so he had a program where he would teach them the best practices for farming, but where he would also be sharing this biblical worldview with them and sharing the gospel with them. And something he said, really it struck me and it stayed with me, he said a lot of times he would get guys who would come to him and who would say that they, they wanted to do farming and they'd say they were praying for God to send rain so that they could be successful. Right? Need rain if you want to do farming, you need water, right? And so he would say, okay, good, good. You do need God's provision for sure. But are you tilling? And are you fertilizing the ground and doing all of the necessary prep work ahead of time expectantly for if God actually answers your prayers? And he said a lot of times the guys would say no to that. They didn't want to do the hard work. They just wanted God to provide everything they needed. And so he would tell them, while I'm glad that you know that you need God's help, If God were to actually send the rain that you are praying for, it would be wasted. It would be wasted. Because your field is not prepared to receive it. All of that rainwater would just run off into the ditch, unable to nourish your crops. This is such an important lesson for the faithfully lived out Christian life, especially in our dwindling but still largely nominal Christian culture here in the South. There are a good percentage of people who love to come to church in tough times. They love to come to church in tough times because they want God to fix all their problems. Their crumbling marriage, their unruly kids, their money issues, or whatever. And so they pray for God's help. And I think that they legitimately believe that they need God's help. But then they just go about their life and they do nothing differently. They don't build relationships with other Christians in the church community who could offer wise counsel. They don't spend time trying to understand what God has to say in his word about how they should live combined with ongoing prayer for his grace. Goodness, they, they wouldn't possibly, I know this because I've wasted so many books like this, they, they certainly wouldn't give up their time to read a Christian book on the topic that they're struggling with. Reading? No way! Just help me, God. Please don't make me read. From time to time, I, I know I tell you cultural Christian phrases I hate. One that I really hate is God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. And so please understand, that's not what I'm trying to say here. Because the gospel says we cannot help ourselves. We cannot help ourselves. We are dead in our sin without God's help. And so if I were to try to redeem that terrible anti-gospel phrase, don't let me ever hear that coming out of your mouth, I would say God helps those who cannot help themselves to look to him for the help that they need. Okay. And this is what Nehemiah does. And I would argue that this is what anyone who has a legitimate spiritual breakthrough, does. Maybe they fast, they pray, they grieve over their sin, and then they get up. They get up and they look to God's word in order to determine how they can start to live differently. And then they act on it. They act on it. They make a plan And they execute that plan. They aren't just hearers of the word, deceiving themselves, but they become doers of the word, who begin striving to live it out. The great evangelist Billy Graham describing repentance. He said this, what does repentance mean? It means to change, to change your mind, to change the way that you're living, and to determine that with God's help, you will live for Christ. And so, friend, as you are continuing to fast and pray these next couple of weeks, I encourage you to, at some point, make the transition. Make the transition from godly grief into thoughtful planning, so that when we're done, you are prepared to take decisive action. Don't Let all of the nourishing water of the word fall on you only to run off and be wasted. Do the hard work of tilling and preparing your field so that when God answers your prayer for breakthrough, you're ready to take action. Don't short-circuit your repentance, guys. Don't short-circuit your repentance. Let me just clarify something, because I see this problem often. You see, repentance is not merely acknowledging our sinfulness generally, right? It's not just saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. That's not repentance, okay? Everybody knows that. Just ask your family, your friends, or whatever. Like, everybody knows you're a sinner. So that's not repentance, okay? Repentance is turning away from specific sins. It's turning away from specific sins and then proactively turning to God instead. That's real repentance. Because you see, God often answers our pleas for help, not with a supernatural quick fix but with opportunities for us to risk taking steps of obedient faith. God often answers our pleas for help, not with a supernatural quick fix, but with opportunities for us to risk taking steps of obedient faith. If you are a student of the Bible, what you see about how God relates with his people is that he is not like a genie who appears to instantly grant wishes for people who rub their bible just right. Okay. Sometimes yes, he will miraculously answer a request to do something drastic right away. But by and large, when God's people come to him for help, the way he helps is by allowing them to get back on the path in front of them. Right? Sometimes Yeah, he's going to do something right away. Most of the time, he's going to help you get back on the path. And often, he instructs us to take steps of faith that seem risky, but trusting him to uphold us and sustain us. Right? We see that with so many stories in the Bible. Abraham wants a son, and God says, I'll give you a whole lot more than that. But first, you're going to have to uproot your life, leave your home, and follow me somewhere where I'll tell you when we get there. Right? Moses wants to see God's people set free from their slavery in Egypt. God says, hey, I want that too. You're going to lead them. Right? It's the same with Nehemiah. He's grieved over Israel's circumstances, prays for God to work, and God makes him one of the key leaders in this restorative work in Jerusalem. Right? So what's the, what's the burden that you have? What's the burden you have that you want God to come in and break through? Some besetting sin in your life that you want to overcome? What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Who are you getting accountable to? What important steps are you taking to put distance between you and that sin? Is there someone you want to see come to Christ? Are you praying for them? Are you preparing yourself to maybe be the one who can lead them through the gospel? Faith comes by hearing. Are you ready to do the telling? What about your marriage? You want your marriage to be healthier and more God-honoring? Are you in the Word? Are you serving your spouse? What books are you reading? I know. What, What resources are you absorbing? You want your kids to follow Jesus? Are you reading the Word with them? Praying for them? Who's discipling them? You or an iPad? You have a community group around you, a community of people who you're willing to ask for help and get this part, actually listen and apply it. You have people you trust, who you allow to speak into your life and tell you what you're doing that's not good and help you to do what is good. Or are you the only one you listen to? Guys, so many people just want to cry out Jesus, take the wheel. But as good of a singer as Carrie Underwood is, faith doesn't really work that way. Faith is not just belief. It's belief that leads to decisive action. Even if those actions seem risky or dangerous or difficult or unadvisable from a worldly perspective. So let me just encourage you just encourage you, when it comes to taking risks for the advancement of God's kingdom, one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference. One person with one conviction and a righteous determination to see the Lord do a gospel advancing work can absolutely make a difference you can make a difference for the kingdom of God. Most of the narrative of the Bible moves forward in exactly that way with the focus on one man or one woman of faith who determines to risk the life they wanted or to risk their reputation in order to see God's kingdom advance. That's how the story moves along usually. Guys, let's let's be men and women like that. Let's be men and women like that. Honestly, if we really want to see spiritual breakthrough in our lives, we will be. We'll become like that. Like the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, who details name after name of Old Testament saint who took risky steps of faith, <clears throat> trusting God to come through for them. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is faithful saints who have gone before us. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so the concept of spiritual breakthrough is really not all that mysterious. It's just what God's people experience when they are grieved by their sin, they repent, and they determine to seek the Lord and his word and in prayer so that they might make a biblical plan to act. (laughs) That's what it is. And God honors it when his people do that. God honors it when his people do that. The way he tends to honor it, the way he answers, our pleas for help is not usually with a supernatural quick fix. It's with opportunities for us to take risk in obedient faith. In my experience as a believer, I'm pretty sure the seasoned believers in the room will agree, (laughs) a life of faith, I'm still coming to grips with this a little bit, I'm still a little young, a life of faith is one of almost constant hard work, and taking occasional risks along the way where we have no choice but to trust that God is not going to let us fall. (laughs) That's a life of faith, and we're going to see that as we continue on in the story of Nehemiah. He takes a big risk making his request known to the king, and the king grants it, right? And he acknowledges that the king grants it because he says, the good hand of God was upon him. But then he enters into a long season of hard work as he rallies Israel to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It's not a quick fix by any means, but after his initial breakthrough, God continues to give Nehemiah, along with the people of Israel, the grace they need to persevere and to finish this good work that they have set out to do. And so as we wrap up today, and we move on from here in the coming weeks to seeing Nehemiah take action and get to work, my final word of encouragement for us is simply the reminder that as Christians, our great confidence for whatever life brings our way is that because of the gospel, God is with us and God is for us. Because of the gospel, God is with us, and God is for us. I hope that you'll remember that as you're continuing to pray and continuing to fast. You should experience grief. You should experience grief if your sin is what has led you into a season of prolonged hardship. But if you're a disciple of Jesus you should not feel condemned by your sin you should not feel condemned by your sin because if we are willing to confess our sin to him Jesus is our advocate before the father who is faithful to forgive us of our sin to cleanse us from all unrighteousness now Nehemiah did not yet know Christ but he had other great old testament promises like Isaiah 41:10 where god tells his people fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You think maybe Nehemiah was relying on that promise? <laughs> Seems like it from his language. But as, as New Testament believers, what an amazing privilege that we can actually know the one through whom our help comes. And it comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus, who says to those who surrender their lives to him and dedicate themselves to his mission, he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's with that knowledge of Jesus promise to be with us and to help us. The apostle Paul declares in Romans 8 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? When Nehemiah prayed and fasted and grieved over his sin and planned for how he might take action to repent and to advance God's kingdom with God's help, not even the most powerful king in the world at that time could come against him. Right? Because, as Proverbs 16:7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And the same is true for us, friends. The same is true for us. Jesus has promised that he will build his church and that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so be encouraged. Be encouraged. Don't give up on your prayer, and on your fasting. If you are seeking a spiritual breakthrough that is biblical, God-glorifying, and kingdom-advancing, Than emulate our good Old Testament example. Nehemiah. Pray, fast, grieve, and repent. But look right at me, okay? Don't stop there. Don't stop there. Plan the steps that you need to take, if God would allow you, so that when the time comes for you to take action, you're ready to do it. I trust that the Holy Spirit is already beginning to get the wheels turning in your heart and your mind about what plans you might need to make and what actions you might need to take. Next week, we'll see how Nehemiah begins to execute the plans that he has made. Let's pray. Father, I'm so humble, so humbled today to be a man who you have entrusted the task of proclaiming your word. Father, as I have fasted, I have prayed in only one week, I'm reminded that, God, you're the one who has qualified me. By by no means am I the man who should be doing this. God, I'm a sinful man. I'm a broken man. It's only by your grace that you have allowed me to stand here and proclaim your word. But I'm so thankful for your word. So thankful for the truth that is in it, God, for how it instructs us, how it rebukes us, how it lovingly corrects us, how it prunes us, and how it gives us life. How it revitalizes our souls. Even if we've been on a hiatus, God, if we've been not pursuing you as we ought, not praying, not doing the things we know we should, God, your word is still able to give life, rejuvenate us, bring us back to you. So, Father, I just pray that for all the men and women who are part of Mosaic, this Mosaic family, that, God, you would, you would hear our prayers, that you would honor our fasting before you, and that we wouldn't just get caught in, a, in grief, in a cycle of sorrow over our sin, indefinitely stuck God, that once we repent, we would look to you and we would start planning for how we need to be different and what actions we need to take to glorify you with our lives as we've been created for. Holy Spirit, help us. Show us what we need to see about ourselves and about what's next for us, both individually and as a church, collectively. God, we want to be faithful. We want to honor you in everything that we do. Would you give us the, the grace we need to do that? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.